0: This morning, I had you turn with me to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and I will turn us back to that because I really didn't get into the subject at all. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For ye shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him, this is the value we placed upon him, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now this Bible is speaking about some person, and it's telling us about this person, that this person was wounded, not for his own transgressions, but wounded for our transgressions. That this person was beaten, not for his own transgressions, but for our transgressions. That this person was killed, not for his transgressions, but for our transgressions. Now, who is this person? And why was he suffering like this? What is the prophet here speaking about? What is he saying or what is he doing? Now, keep this in mind because it will be the basis of my message tonight. Now I want you to turn to the sixth verse. Remember the fifth said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Now the sixth verse has something pretty pertinent to say. And remember this prophet is not talking about his generation. This was written 600 years before Jesus came this prophet was not talking about his generation alone nor was he talking about all of those who had lived before him he was not looking at his own generation and back for God was opening his eyes to look at all men everywhere even those who had not yet been born and he says all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, most of us would freely admit to this. We'd say, yeah, I want to live my own life. Yeah, I want to do my own thing. Yeah, I want to have my own bag. Yes, I want my freedom. What's wrong with that? And there is a great misunderstanding in this world today of what is wrong with wanting to live your own life. Now, according to the Bible, according to the word of God, there is something desperately and terribly wrong about wanting to do your own thing. Now, some of you right now may take issue with me and say, brother, I don't like that at all. But I want you to listen to me long enough to see if what I have to say is right. If when I'm finished, there's something ringing deep down inside you that makes you say, man, that's right. I hear what he has to say. There's something, according to the Bible, desperately and terribly wrong with wanting to do your own thing. The Bible talks about it here in this 6th verse. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. Now, why does God say, first of all, to which we would all agree... That all we like sheep have gone astray, and because we like sheep have gone astray, God had to bring to death his only begotten son. That's really what he says in this book. Because we went astray, God had to bring his only begotten son into the world. He had to place upon him all of the sins of mankind. And by the way, what is sin? Some people in this day say, man, what's all the big talk about sin? What is sin? It's only thinking that makes it evil or it's only what you believe is wrong that makes it evil no that isn't true there is a certain thing and a lot of fruits that come from that thing that the Bible calls sin and once I explain it to you I think the Holy Spirit will make it clear to many of you that sin is a real thing that evil exists that there is a force a way of thinking and acting and being and doing that can do nothing but lead you into eternal misery. There's no possibility of it doing anything else. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Now, a lot of people get it all mixed up and they think sin is like robbing banks and shooting people. That's the fruit of sin, maybe. But that's not what sin is. Sin is something in a man, not out of a man. Sin is not something you do, it's something you have and something you are. The Bible talks about what sin is. Now, God, in the beginning, created mankind. He made us. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't decide one day to come into the world and say, I'm going to be a human being. I'm coming out of nothingness. And I'm going to come into the world. I'm going to be a human being. I'm going to grow up, I'm going to live my own life, I'm going to do my own thing. And when I get to be a certain number of years along, I'm going to go out of this world and go someplace else. That isn't what happened. The basic self-existing person in the whole universe is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are, the Bible tells us, one. They existed before all things, and by them all things have been created that are made. There's nothing made, the Bible says, that God has not made. Now, that includes me and you. That includes the materials out of which this church was built. It includes the earth on which we live, and it includes the planets and the stars and the whole cosmos. God made it. And one day He will unmake it and make it all over again. It is God from which all things have come, and it is God to which all things will return. He's our Maker. Now, God established this universe on basic principles. They're living principles. They're right principles. They're proper principles. And the basic principle upon which he established this whole wide universe is a four-letter word that the Bible talks about again and again and again. And that basic principle is love. L-O-V-E, love. And without that principle working in the human heart and the human life, and I'm not talking about some substitute for love. I'm not talking about some lesser type of love. I'm not talking about human love or the love of passion or the love of lust or the love of money. I'm talking about that love that God himself places in the human heart and causes a man to love without any axe to grind, that kind of love. God placed it in the universe and He intended that the whole wide universe, every angel that He ever made, every human that He ever made, every animal that He ever made, would operate on that perfect principle and function on that principle. L-O-V-E love. Now only God is love. The devil is not love. Someone say I don't believe in the devil. Brother, I'm gonna tell you it'd take more faith not to believe in the devil than to believe in the devil. Everywhere you look, you'll see the marks of that evil creature. The things that terrible wrong, this young girl tonight that they're talking about for us to pray for, already overdosed herself once, wants to do it again, wants to take her life, wants to take that marvelous thing that God has placed in a human body called life. That thing which of it is given to God can literally be transformed by God into an instrument to bring love to the world. And here today, this girl is ready to take her life. Why? Because she's missed that basic element in her life, which God says is love. If she had that, she wouldn't even think about overdosing herself. What she'd want to do is take that love and give it to others. But she doesn't have it. Poor girl. I pray that some of you will take the love that God has placed in your heart, and you'll go to her and help her to find what she needs. Now, God alone is love. Everything else, that either has God's love or it's without love. But only God is the source of that love. Only God is the source from which that love flows. Only God is perfect love. There is no perfect love. There is no perfect anything unless it is all summed up in God. And therefore I say to you, God is the only rightful ruler of this universe. God has a government. Do you think that these stars are in their courses Perfectly moving from generation to generation and year to year by some accident? Do you not know deep down in your own hearts and minds that God placed them there and God keeps them moving on their perfect courses? Do we not understand that the earth on which we live has been created by God and made by God and it's kept by Him in a perfect orbit? It is God that upholds all things by the word of His power. It is God's government that keeps this universe functioning as it is. And I tell you, God has a moral government, not only a physical government. Not only does he rule over planets and does he rule over plants and does he rule over animals, but he rules over you and I. Now the trouble is, the trouble is that billions upon billions of people have recognized that God is the rightful ruler of the universe, and now here we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of it. The people have recognized that God is the rightful ruler of the universe and they have turned from his righteous government and tried to set up governments of their own. Individual governments within their own hearts. God alone is the righteous governor of the universe. God alone is the righteous governor of your heart and your life. God alone is the righteous governor of my heart and my life. I owe it to God to support him. God alone is love. He's the only one that has a right to rule in this universe. And the only way that he can rule substantially and powerfully and effectively is for me and for you to voluntarily support that government of God. It is God's government. He has given this government to mankind. And we need to voluntarily support that government of God with our love. So the first commandment, now hear it tonight. A lot of people say, the minute you talk to them about sin, they say, well, I never tell anybody. Do you know that that commandment was not given until many, many years later? Do you know that Jesus never even mentioned that as any of the great commands? Do you know what the great commandment of God is? What is the great commandment of God? What is the first commandment of God? Here it is. Here. The Lord thy God is one Lord. And him shall love with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, with all of thy mind, and with all of thy strength. Why is that so? Because he is the only rightful governor of the universe. He's the only one who knows how to run it right. Look what mankind has done with this universe when they took it. God made man a free moral agent. What does that mean? You have the right of choice is what it means. You have the right to choose this day what you'll do. You have the power to love God or the power to say, I'm not going to love God. I'm going to love me instead. I'm going to take off and I'm going to run my own little government over here. I'm not going to be under God's government. I'm going to have my government. I'm going to do my own thing. But my friend, hear me today. This universe is in the mess that it's in. This world is in the mess that it's in. Because people everywhere are doing their own thing instead of doing what the Bible says to do, loving God with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength and letting Him be God. Letting Him be governor. Letting Him be ruler. Letting Him be king and worshiping Him. Oh, if we get the whole world, the war in Vietnam would stop. The mess in Indo-China would be finished. The trouble in Israel would come to a standstill. The Russian specter would disappear. The bamboo curtain would have no meaning. The imperialism of different nations, the slavery that we see in the world would be gone in a moment of time. The racial strife, the discrimination, the ghettos, the poverty, the suffering, the sorrow, the jails, the hospitals would in a moment of time, in an hour of time, be completely righted. If the whole wide world would stop doing their own thing and turn to God and say, Lord, you are God and we'll love you with all of our heart and our mind and our strength. <laughs> Amen. That's the end of strife in this world. Now I think you recognize the ring of truth in your own hearts. Now the Bible goes on a step further when Jesus comes into the picture who is the personification of God. He was God's only begotten son. Lived with God from all eternity, for he was eternal himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now when man sins, what do I mean by sin? Well, let's get down to what we're talking about with sin. What is it really? It's a very simple thing and a very terrible and a very evil thing. God says, love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And I'll tell you what man has done He's put God out of his thoughts like God doesn't really even exist. Or he remembers God in a kind of a now and then. Or he says something like, I'm searching for God. But all of the time he has enthroned his own will. And his own plans. And his own desires. And his own needs. as God. And he goes about all day long. All night long. When he wakes up in the night, he's got one thought on his mind. When he goes out in the daytime, he's got one thought on his mind. And that is how his own particular needs and wants and lusts will be fulfilled. And God is not at all in his thoughts. Instead of loving God with all of his heart and his soul and his mind, he's thinking about himself. And the Bible says, where do wars come from among you? You want to know where Vietnam came from? Oh, this is going to sting. But I've got to tell you the truth because it is the truth. Do you know where Vietnam came from? Do you know where World War II came from? Do you know where the Bible prophesies of a great World War III coming? When it says the slain in that day shall be from one end of the earth to the other, they shall be as dung upon the ground... They shall be neither lamented nor buried. I remember in World War II, the pictures that came to us while we were in training of the terrible carnage that took place in limited areas. And they would take and they would bury the dead bodies. And then there were more bombings and more deaths and more shootings and they would bury the dead bodies. And they would bury them again. And finally so many bodies were everywhere that they just didn't care anymore. There was the reek and the stench and the smell of rotting flesh. They couldn't be lamented. They couldn't feel sorry. First time you see one man shot, your heart goes out and say, Oh my God, a man has been killed. How terrible. A Life is taken away. And then another and another and another. And finally everywhere you look day after day and hour after hour and moment after moment. Dead bodies, dead bodies, dead bodies. And you become numb with the shock of it. And you feel nothing. Bible says they won't be lamented nor buried but be as dung upon the ground. You know where that war is coming from? The Bible says where do wars come from? Come they not from your own lust warring in your own members. But i tell you something, if I'm at peace with God and peace with myself, I'm at warfare with no man. I don't want anybody's backyard. I don't want anybody's wife. I don't want anybody's house. I don't want to have power over anybody. I don't want to force anybody to do anything willing to let the other man live, and he's willing to let me live, if love is in his heart. But I tell you, if I'm torn up inside like this, and there's no peace on the inside, and I'm striving, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this, some one of those fellas, someone one of those fellas is going to strive and claw and fight his way to power, and he's going to be at the head of a nation. And some one of those fellas of a different nationality, but with the same problem on the inside, he's going to fight and claw his way to power. And he's going to be at the head of government. And over here is going to be another one fighting and clawing his way to power. And he's going to be at the head of government. And here you have one head of government here and one head and one head and one head. And they have the power to send hundreds of thousands and millions of men into warfare. And all that nation under is clawing and fighting for something. They're fighting each other and tearing each other apart. And then this man stands up and he says, if you'll follow me, oh, I remember Hitler's speeches when I was a youth. What a powerful speaker that man was. And He said, Germany is coming to the hour of its destiny. We're the supreme nation upon the earth. Now notice how this thing is fighting within them and tearing. They're trying to get this and they're trying to get that and they're trying to get something else. And then Hitler calls their attention and says, listen to me, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You follow me, and I'll give you the rich fields of Europe for your playgrounds. I'll give you the vast acreages of America to raise your children in. We'll take Russia, and it'll be our resort land. And we'll take Africa, and we'll take Israel, and that'll be where our oil will come from. We'll take England, and we'll rule the world. Follow me. Over on the other side of the world, someplace, somebody is standing up and doing the same thing, and he wants what doesn't belong to him either. Where do wars come from among you? Come they not from your own lust, war, and within your own members? Now he's at the head of a nation, and he's still clawing for more, 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 and the people are clawing for more, more, more. Finally, wars begin, and when the bloodbath is finished, the carnage is over. People rise up and say, we must never have another war. Never again must we fight like this. And I tell you something, no sooner was World War II finished and the United Nations was set up, suddenly war broke out, and war broke out, and war broke out. And we're plunging headlong as fast as we can to a World War III. Why? Men don't want war, but on the inside, they still want to do their own thing and the lust of fighting and ripping in the inside. You want what doesn't belong to you. You want somebody else's money doesn't belong to you. You want somebody else's body doesn't belong to you. You're not willing to take God's way. The Bible says marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled. What a beautiful thing it is to see a man and a woman come together. Marry. Yes, they have sexual relations. It's a natural thing. It's a good thing in its proper context, its proper relationship. Children are born into the home. Man and woman love each other. Prepare a home of love waiting for that lovely baby to come into the realm. Another one, another one. They raise it in a home of love. That's a beautiful thing. But adultery, fornication, terrible things. We rob people of their respect, their decency. We crush them, we hurt them. We break up homes. All in the name of what? I wanted it.
1: I had a right to it.
0: No, my friend, you had no right to it. And if you'd have loved God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, you wouldn't have wanted it either. Wouldn't have wanted it. Over the years, I've had things stolen from me. Over the years, I've stolen things from people. I took it because I wanted it. It wasn't mine. It belonged to another person. Maybe they needed it desperately. Maybe it was the last money that they had. I took it away from them. You know why? Because I believed in my mind. Oh, I knew better. But I had justified and rationalized, and I believed in my mind that if there was a person who needed it more than me, I didn't know who that person was. Here's a man that has $50. It might be the last 50 he needs. He might need it to pay his rent with. He might need it to feed his family with. He might need it to keep his gas bill from being turned off. He might need it to keep from losing his car. But I fancy that I needed it, and I took it from him. Don't you understand that the reason why men do things like that is because they don't love God with all their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength? That's what sin is. I need it. I want it. And once I get that concept in my mind, this concept of I, this ego concept, this me concept, then I'm perfectly willing to steal, to lie, to cheat, to defraud, to rob, to commit adultery or rape or murder or anything else that you can name that is contrary to decency. All in the name of I needed it. Or even worse, I wanted it. Now, the Bible says the second commandment is a whole lot like the first. The Bible says the second commandment is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I don't wonder that there are so many crimes in the world today. I don't wonder that there's thievery in the world today. I don't wonder that there's disillusionment in the world today. I don't wonder that sexual immorality is at an all-time high. You know, based on that principle that God lays down... Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The Bible says God is not at all in their thoughts. We don't do that. Unless you're a Christian. Unless Jesus has come into your life. You can't do it. Because you've turned away from God to your own way. And you've been caught up in a terrible trap. And you've literally been coiled around by the sins of your own making. And they have you bound and twisted and you're held tight. And you can't get free. It takes somebody greater than you to make you free. It takes somebody greater than you to rip that selfishness out of you and put love back on the inside again. You can't do it by yourself now. You're in a trap. The trap that you made. I didn't make it. God didn't make it. You made it. Now, the Bible says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You wonder why there's so much devilment in the world today? I'll tell you Why? Because most people hate themselves. Most people hate themselves. And well, they might hate themselves. You tell me that I didn't hate myself? Oh, I said, Not really. I love myself. But I didn't really. You tell me that when I went over there and took that man's last $50 that I could love myself? You tell me that when you violate the law of God and you force somebody to give you something that they needed and you wanted, it and you took it away from him? When you robbed somebody of their self-respect and their decency and their honor and their integrity? When you got somebody started on the road to sin? When you got them hooked? When you got them twisted up? When you got them messed up and you saw the result of what you did? There are some people that I actually started on the road to sin. Well, they had sin in their own lives, but I helped them on the road. I went out and said, come on, this is a great thing for you to do. Oh, let's go here. And got him into sin, and saw what happened to those people. You mean to say I could go home and love myself? I hated myself. I despised myself. I was sick of myself. I was disgusted with myself. Wish I could die. The Bible says, "Love your neighbor as you love yourself." I wonder if we hate ourselves if we end up hating our neighbor. Yeah. That's what the Bible teaches we do. We effectively hate them. Now, look at the condition that the world is in today. We don't love God. We don't love our neighbor. We don't love ourselves. What can bring about this great change? What can transform us? Well, the answer is simple. Something has to change me. See, God doesn't have to change because he's eternal. He's perfect. I'm the one that messed everything up. I'm the one that went haywire. It's me that has to change. And so the first thing that God asks us to do is something that he calls repenting. Now you stop and ask yourself this question. If you do not love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, then you've committed the first and greatest of all sins. And every day and every hour and every moment that you haven't loved God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, you kept on committing the greatest of all sins. Secondly, the Bible says love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you're filled with hatred and you can't love your neighbor, and you don't love yourself, then you committed the second and the third greatest of all sins. Now you forget all about the murder. You forget all about the lying. You forget all about the cheating. These are only the fruits of three terrible things. You don't love God with all your heart. You don't love your neighbor. And you can't love yourself. Now friends, if these things are true in your life, I'm going to tell you how to change them tonight. If they're true, you are a sinner. And I'll tell you something. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have failed in loving God with all of their hearts. All have failed in loving their neighbor. All have failed in accepting themselves. Why? Because sin was in their life. Now, how are you going to get rid of this? You need someone to produce a change... In your life, you're not able to do it by yourself. God will have to do it for you. So what you've got to do is come to God first of all and admit to him that you have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned. You're not unique. You're not special. All men everywhere have sinned. All men everywhere have come short of the glory of God. All men everywhere have failed in the expectations that God has for them. Here he has a divine and perfect plan for their lives. He plans for you to manifest his wonderful love. He plans for you to be able to love everybody everywhere. He plans for you to be set free from your bondage and your corruption. He has this plan for you. And all of us have come short of God's plan for our lives. All of us have failed to do what God wants us to do. Now, do you want to change? Do you want a different way of living? Do you want to be transformed? You can be. And here's how you do it. Number one, you come to God tonight. Now, I don't know how long you've been running from God. I don't know how long your ears have been closed to God. I don't know how long your eyes have been closed to the truth of the Word of God. I don't know how long your mind has been stopped to His truth. But you're hearing tonight. You come to God tonight. You come to God as a single individual human. Now you forget about everybody else in this congregation. You come to God tonight. And you come to God and say, Lord, I have sinned. According to this definition, now that I understand what sin is, I have sinned. I haven't loved you with all my heart. I don't really love you at all. My mind is not on you. You're not the center of my life. You're not my God. You're not my ruler. I haven't followed you. I haven't allowed you to work in my life. As a matter of fact, my life has been contrary to what you told me to do. I haven't loved you with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. God, I'm a sinner. And furthermore, Lord, I haven't loved my neighbor. haven't loved them. There are some of my neighbors I hate. There are some of my school chums I've hated. There's some people in this world I can't stand. I haven't loved them, Lord. Not only that, Lord, you've made me and I've become so rotten inside I can't even stand myself. I hate myself. You get down before God and admit that to him. And then you turn to God and you say, Lord, I need you to come inside of me and change me. I need you to take out the hate and the bitterness inside of me. I need you to take out the nastiness that's inside of me. I need you to take out the anger that's inside of me. I need you to take out the viciousness that's inside of me. The things I've done to people. The words I've spoken to people. The way I've treated people. The way I've acted toward people. And Lord, most of all, the way I've acted toward you. Take it out of me, Lord. Well, there's only one way he can take it out of you. And that's the next step. You've got to let him come into you. Amen. Him come into you. You say, Lord, you told me that if I would believe and ask you that you would send your son Jesus. Oh, here's this marvelous thing in the book of Isaiah. You would send your son Jesus and he would come into me and he would change my whole life and he would begin to show me the right way to live. Lord, I'm asking you here and now. I'm opening myself up to you. I ask you to take out all of this bitterness. I don't want to live this way anymore, Lord. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I'm telling you, the Bible says, whatever you ask Jesus of this nature, he will do. And Jesus will come into your life. And the next step, the Bible says, is the simplest one of all. When you've allowed him to come in, the Bible says, get up and confess that from henceforth, you're going to serve Jesus. You're going to follow him. And make up your mind from that point on that you're going to love God because you now have the power to do it. That you're going to love Jesus with all your heart because you now have the power to do it. And you're going to find, strangely, a miracle is going to happen. It'll start right here. Some of you right in this place tonight are filled with hatred. You're filled with the pain of your own sin, the pain of your own life. I tell you something, you do what I told you tonight. And right here, the hatred will disappear. The pain will go. The sorrow will be gone. And you'll turn and look at these people. But you may be sitting here saying, oh, I'm getting mad at that preacher and I don't like what I'm hearing and so forth. Maybe some of you are already passed that point. You're saying what he says to me sounds right on. It's right. But I'm still filled with this pain on the inside. And the minute you accept Jesus Christ, that pain will disappear. And you'll stand up and look out at this people and say, hey, man, I love those people. I love those people. And love will begin to flow. And I'll tell you an amazing thing that you'll find. You may have come in here and thought this was the funniest looking group of people you ever saw assembled in your whole lifetime. But I'm going to tell you something. The minute you let Jesus Christ come into your heart, you're going to see that every single one of them are looking at you with eyes of love. And that love is flowing in you as an individual. Now, I ask you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. And I'm going to see. I'm going to see what God will do here tonight. Now, friends, how many are in this place tonight? You've heard this message that I've given to you, and something deep down inside is giving you the ring of truth. You know what I'm saying is right on, you know what I'm saying is the truth. You may have never read it in the Bible for yourself, but I read it out of the Bible and you know it's right. The main thing is that the Holy Spirit made it clear to you and you say, yeah that's right on man, you're talking about me. I haven't loved God with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. I've loved myself instead. I haven't really loved my neighbor. Some of them I've hated. Some of them I've despised. And I can't really love myself because the things I've done are still on the inside. And they're terrible things and they're bad things. Everything you've said is right on. And when you talked about Jesus, something wrong on the inside too, that he's the answer. And I'm ready now to come to Jesus. I'm ready to admit to God that I am a sinner. I'm ready to admit to God that I haven't loved him. I'm ready to admit to God I haven't loved my neighbor and I can't love myself. I'm ready to admit these things to God. I'm ready to ask him to come inside of me and take all of those things out. I'm ready to let Jesus come in. I'm ready to begin a new life. I need a new life. Now, while every head is bowed, every eye closed, I want every person in this place tonight that agrees with what I said here and you don't know Jesus. You want to have him in your heart tonight? I want you to raise your hand. There's a sign to me that you want Jesus to come into your heart. Will you do it right now? Raise your hand. God bless you, young lady. And you, sir, I see that hand, too. And you, young lady, and you, and you, yes. Is there here tonight? Yes, I see this hand, young man. Who else raised their hand? Say, I want Jesus. I see that hand, young man. God bless you, and you, too, young lady. Praise the Lord. Who else is here tonight? I see that hand up in the balcony. Lord bless you. Who else is here tonight? I see that hand, young lady. Amen. Yeah, that hand back there, too. Praise the Lord. That hand, young lady. Yes. See those hands. Amen. God bless you, sir. I see that hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, i tell you what I want because it takes physical movement on your part. It not just all inside the Bible says believe in the heart confess with the mouth and act upon it that's the basic principle that every person must do that will make up their mind to follow God the Bible talks about a bold confession an open testimony an open stand for Jesus the Bible says if you're ashamed of me and my words then I'll be ashamed of you in that day but the Bible tells us that we boldly confess and he'll boldly confess us before his father that's why we ask you to raise your hand. That's why we ask you to make an open move for God. I want every one of you to raise your hand tonight. You trust my words, you trust me, you feel something here. I want you to get up out of your seats wherever you are and come and stand with me here tonight. Will you do that? Come right along now. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Everyone
1: to raise your hand. I have been concerned as I've been ministering this series of messages about Christ in you, the hope of glory that you really grasp fully what that means. And I believe in a large measure you have grasped, because we repeated over and over, that Christ is in you. But I would like that to be clear how that applies in every area of our life. Now recently, and with increasing numbers of times, I have had to deal with severe family problems mostly between husband and wife, but also between parents and children, and a good deal of that is completely healable. As a matter of fact, all of it is, if this could be understood fully the way I'm speaking today and what I've been leading up to in these messages about Christ in you. So I'm going to take some time to not begin a new series of messages, but to deal with this resurrection life of Christ as in relationship to the family. Now, you remember last week I dealt with the idea of casting on the screen of your imagination not what Satan would have put there, the way you see yourself, the way you view yourself, but rather to see yourself as Christ has made you, to see this new man, this new woman, this new person in the light of the Word of God. Now, many people do not actively meditate on the Word of God. They do not actively ponder... See, not only do they not read the Bible, there's a very severe and serious lack in people's lives. Not only do they not read it, but they do not go beyond just reading it and meditate upon it until what happens is you begin to see working in your life, cast on the screen of your imagination, see you carrying out that form of Christian living. Now many times in our imagination. At times we see ourselves, and it's almost like a fantasy, doesn't have to be, but many times it is, like us preaching to great crowds of people or healing the sick or raising the dead or something of that nature, which is also the heart of God. But see, that is not going to happen in any real sense, or if it did happen, it would be overthrown ultimately if life on a much simpler, clearer plane is not lived. In other words, that resurrection life is to be lived in a a 24-hour-a-day normal type of setting. We're to live that life in a way that expresses itself on the job. We're to live that life in a way that expresses itself in the community. But particularly, we're to live that life as it expresses itself between husband and wife if you're married, brothers and sisters, friends. But uniquely today, I'm going to deal with husband and wife in the way that it relates to parents and children. husband, wife, parents, children, and then the next generation. So all of that is a very important understanding because it matters really little that we can stand before a crowd of 100, 200, 300, 200,000. It matters little if when we come home to our wives or our husbands or our children, there is not the living Christ in that home. So. I'd like you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer, and I want us to look at some simple things that you can do to utterly transform your life on this earth. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I ask you to this day make clear to the people that are here and those who will later hear these messages, Lord, by tape or video, Lord, that that divine anointing will be upon me and upon the hearts of your people, wherever they may be, that listen but especially this group of people here today, uniquely, personally. I ask a special anointing upon them. Lord, that this area that Satan battles against so strongly, and Lord, an area which most of us don't give enough attention to, and do not take advantage of the wonderful, powerful tools that God has given us to manifest the life of Christ in our families. I pray today, Lord, that that will be done. That your anointing will rest upon the hearts of the people that they are able to grasp and understand in truth what is being said here, Father. Grant this, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now I'm going to read, but not comment on too much, two scriptures so that your mind is brought back to the basic concepts that we're talking about here. Number one is to be found in Galatians the second chapter and the 20th verse. I'm going to start at the 18th here, but it's the 20th verse that will be the main theme idea. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So now, comment back so you understand it. We destroyed it. The destruction he's speaking of here was destroyed when we received Christ because something very powerful happened, and what the powerful thing was We'll see this from other scriptures, is that Christ entered our human nature. Now, in entering our human nature, for all time, if we would believe it, confess it, and act upon it consistently, the power of sin would be broken in our lives. See, not only are we delivered from the judgment of sin, not only are we delivered from the penalty of sin, we are delivered by Christ entering into us from the power of sin. So it no longer has power to move us unless we give it power. Now, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if I let come back in my life the very thing that I've destroyed by receiving Christ, by nudging him aside or pushing him aside or refusing, you'll see how this develops, then I make myself a transgressor. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And in that he delivered himself up for us, he delivered us from ourselves. Now he's come to live inside of us. Now, the second scripture, which I worked from last week, is found in Second uh, Corinthians, the 10th chapter. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. You remember I spoke to you those weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now the warfare then that we go through, which is so destructive to this process of Christ living in us, is the reaffirming that the thought processes of our natural mind, our human mind, our instinctive mind, I'll use the word that Philip's translation uses, our instinctive minds, the way we have been trained to react to life, not respond, response to life, if something happens, And I intelligently, based on a right set of premises, with my soul in control, I respond to the life situation in a proper godly way. The normal person does not respond to life, he instinctively reacts to life. A name is called, he becomes angry and calls a name in return. Someone says something, we are stirred and we attack in return. This is instinctive living. Insult for insult, anger for anger, hatred for hatred, vengeance for vengeance. Now, we are speaking then about a powerful, wonderful happening that we can, if we will, because Christ is living in us, we can tear down these fortresses of the human mind which are purely instinctive, sinfully instinctive, wickedly instinctive. And because we're no longer under the power of sin, we can live above that, beyond that, over that. We can manifest the nature of Jesus Christ in these situations. Now, how do we do it? Last week's message, or the week before, if you don't remember it, get the tape, go over it. It has a great deal to do, and I'll mention this again today, but a great deal to do what you in your meditation cast upon the screen of your mind, how you see yourself responding to life's instinctively implanted situations. The world has implanted in you and in I and every human being a way to act instinctively. You strike at me and I instinctively throw up my hand to protect myself. You call me a name and I, you, and I'm ready to attack with A similar name. Instinctive living. We wish to be done away with instinctive living and we wish to live in the Spirit. Live in response to the promptings of the Spirit through Christ in us. Say, no, not that. Say this. No, not that. Do this. No, not that. Express this emotion. Say, yes, Lord. Response to life, not reaction to life. All right, now. As we go into our message here then this morning, I'm going to be speaking on the subject of love. Remember, I'm going to deal with the family life in particular, I'm going to deal with the subject of love. But I wish to take the Phillips translation today, and I'm going to open up to Romans the 8th chapter. I wish you would simply listen to Phillips. No condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's this principle of Christ living in us, and us in him. For the new spiritual principle of life in Christ Jesus lifts me out of the old vicious circle of sin and death. Now, what he will say later on in this series of verses is, if you remain in this old vicious cycle of sin, you will die. Not die in the sense that you won't go to heaven. That could happen, but that's not the likely thing that will take place. But what will die is the blessings of life. What will die is the joy unspeakable and full of glory that is meant by God to keep you to where you are living a life filled, spilling over with the joy of being alive in Christ Jesus. And that becomes contagious as you express it to other people. They are filled with the same kind of joy. So we wish to express that life of joy. Now, what will happen if we do not live according to this principle of being lifted out of the old vicious circle of sin and death is we're sucked down into it, and far from expressing joy, giving joy, we will continually drain people of their joy also because we are such a vast chasm of pain and hurt. All right. The law never succeeded in producing righteousness. I won't go into that area, the Old Testament. The failure was always the weakness of human nature. Now listen to this very important principle, truth, reality. But God has met this by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to live in that human nature which causes the trouble. Now you see, the more you're conscious of Christ living in you, then the more you can take hold of this divine reality and it becomes real to you. If you see from the Old Testament point of view that God is here in the heavens somewhere, and Christ is seated at his right hand, which is true in a certain sense, the larger sense. But there is the divine sense in which I say that because he is infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and that he is the whole, he said the whole universe cannot contain me. The heavens cannot contain me. He is everywhere. He has uniquely sent his son Jesus Christ to live in you and to live in me. And I am to be very conscious that today, Sunday, April, whatever date it is, 1985, Jesus Christ is living in me. And I'm not speaking by my own power, but by the power of the divine Son of God who resides in me and now has a message to give to you. Lord, speak through me. See, that must be the consciousness, the awareness. The Bible says we speak by the promptings of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, This do, do not do this. This do, do not do this. He's guiding us. And furthermore, he is empowering us. So it's not me trying to be good. It's Christ Jesus empowering me to be what he is. And that is good. Hallelujah. But God has met this by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to live in that human nature which causes the trouble. And while Christ was actually taking upon himself the sins of men... God condemned that sinful nature. In other words, right while Jesus was being crucified, that great divine transaction took place, and sin was condemned. That human nature was condemned in the sense that it was to lose its power forever, and the way Jesus Christ would come in and live there. Now, stop for a minute and bow your heads with me, please. Close your eyes, and I want to stop. And I want you to say just quietly here while you're meditating on this: "Christ Jesus lives in me." Christ. Jesus lives in me. Say it again. Christ Jesus lives in me. Now be aware of it. Be quiet just for a moment. I want you to meditate that Jesus is living in you. He is there to change your thoughts. He's there to empower you to think different thoughts. He's there to change your imaginations. He is there to empower you to have true imaginations. He is there to change your emotional structure. He's there to change the way you view life. He is not only there to change it, he's there to empower you so that you can change it. Say it with me again. Thank you, Lord. You live inside of me. That's right. Now, let's go on with the message. I want you to be aware of that throughout the message because everything that I will minister today will have no value whatever unless you see it's his power in you. It's him living in you that is the power. See, it is not something that, well, that's a wonderful thought there, Jim, and I'm going to try to do that. You will never be able to do that. I can't do it. No one can do it. The greatest man that ever lived, I don't know who that would be, they can't do it. But Jesus can do it. And he lives inside of you. All right. Then he goes on to speak about meeting the laws, requirements, and so forth. I want to go down now to verse 9. But you are not carnal, but spiritual, if the Spirit of God finds a home within you. You cannot indeed be a Christian at all unless you have something of His Spirit in you. And by the way, this little difference that it's making here is a very important difference. Someone said the gospel, the way it is normally preached, prepares people to die. In other words, thank God you're saved, and if you died right now, you'd go to heaven. Now, that's the basic message of the gospel. It is not the Bible message of the gospel. The Bible message of the gospel is most likely you are not going to die right now. And you're not going to die tomorrow. And you're probably not going to die for a long, long time in the sense of physical death. So what the Bible is really here for, the principle of Jesus Christ living inside of you, is not to prepare you to die, but to prepare you to live on a new plane of life altogether where the whole world can see the nature of Jesus Christ living in you. So we're speaking about being prepared to live. I know you're prepared to die. How many feel if you passed away right now, you'd go to heaven and be with the Lord? Can I see your hand? Sure. Praise God. All right, you're all prepared to die, right? All right, good. Now let's get prepared to live. Hallelujah. All right. You cannot indeed be a Christian at all unless you have something of his spirit in you. Now, if Christ does live within you, His presence means that your sinful nature is dead. And I want to make a point here, there is no place in Scripture where it talks about our sinful nature dying. There is no progressive thing here that the Bible is speaking about. And I want you to understand that. If you take a different position than this, your sinful nature will never get around to being dead. If you tell it, it's dying, it says, uh, well, okay, I agree with you, but I'm dying mighty slow, right? Oh yes, you're dying slow. It might even take a hundred thousand years, right? Oh yes, I uh, see. And therefore, what it's really saying is, you're not going to be dead at all. Now, if you understand the scriptural idea of dead indeed unto sin, it's like this. See, sometimes people get all confused because they use their five senses, and their five senses deceive them. See, the question is, if I am dead to sin, how come I sin? All right, I want to give you a scriptural understanding here. It's the question of knowing truth by what you really know to look at, or a person being blinded to truth because he looks at the wrong things. In other words, he's got the wrong premise, the wrong idea. If I go out to a tree, large tree, small one would not matter, but let's say some big tree, very green, very beautiful, then taking up the water and the sun has come upon it and the leaves are out there and it's just a lush, beautiful tree. And someone says, look at that tree, that tree is alive, look at it, the green of the leaves and the branches and the, look at it, just look at the power of that tree. Now let's say someone who is knowledgeable is there, and he looks down at the base of it and he sees something very unusual. Someone has put a ring, chopped out a space on the bark, about a foot high, gone all the way around the tree and cut through the cambium layer. Now, the tree is still there. Yesterday, it could have been said of that tree before this bark and the cambium layer was removed. All that that person would have said about that tree was completely true. Look at that tree. It's alive. It's vital. It's powerful, dynamic. Look, you said any number of things about that tree. How beautiful. Now, this man who has knowledge, see, now you have knowledge. You have knowledge of the holy. You have knowledge of the word of God. This man who has knowledge looks down at the tree while the other person is speaking these praises of this tree, what he sees, how he's overcome with the beauty of it. He says, sir, let me tell you about this tree. Yes, tell me. This tree is dead. Dead. But don't you see the leaves? Don't you see the, don't you see? This tree is dead. The life has been cut off. There's a little bit of something still flowing up there, but pretty soon it's going to be gone. The tree has no more ability to draw up moisture. The tree has no more ability to draw up food. The tree has no more ability to take in the life that it needs to keep itself alive. And after a few days, few weeks, whatever it takes, you will see those beautiful, luscious leaves shriveling and pretty soon rot sets in and the tree falls over and it's finished. One man looks at it one way and says, look at that tree, it's alive. Just like sometimes you look at yourself and say, Well, if I'm dead, how come I... But you need to look at what has happened. The base, the method by which you draw life in, unless you rebuild again what has been destroyed at Calvary, that base has been cut. Satan has no more power to get to you unless you give him power. If I rebuild again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor like if someone could come back in and put the cambium layer back in and graft it into place and the bark back into place and rebuild what had been taken away that killed it, then we are a transgressor. But if I say no, I know what happened at Calvary. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I no longer, me alive, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am dead now that's what Paul is getting at here so we want no more of that part of our sinful nature we do not recognize it we do not resurrect it we do not let it have power in our lives now if Christ does live within you his presence means that your sinful nature is dead but your spirit becomes alive because of the righteousness he brings with him I said that our nature is dead in the presence of Christ, and so it is because of it its sin. Nevertheless, once the Spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you, He will, by the same Spirit, bring your whole being to new strength and vitality. A whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of living, a whole new way of responding, no more reactions, no more instinctive, sinful, none of that. The old programmed nature, powerless, unless you give it power, And we're going to start manifesting a whole different kind of life. So then, my brothers, you can see that we have no particular reason to feel grateful to our sensual nature. Don't go around praising what you did when you were a sinner. Oh, I remember the fun we used to have back there in 1942. Man went out and we used to really hit it up with all the things we used to do. God forbid. The Bible says the things we used to do are a shame. They should not even be mentioned. Let's not go back there and resurrect those things, they are not good. So then, my brothers, you can see we have no particular reason to feel grateful to our sensual nature or to live life on the level of the instincts. Indeed, that way of living leads to certain death. Now, here's this great truth. But if, on the other hand, you cut the nerve of your instinctive actions by obeying the Spirit, you are on your way to real living. Have you ever said this? I want to really live. I want to really live. Ever said that? Everyone said that sometime or other or something similar. Well, Paul says the way to do it, he spoke by the Spirit. He says, make sure you cut the nerve of your instinctive living. Make sure you cut off the bark. Make sure you remove the cambium layer. Now, how do you do that? You do that by faith in Jesus Christ. He did it at Calvary. You say, Lord, I see myself there. I step back into this cross, and I stay here. I am dead, Lord, and you're living inside of me. Now live through me, Lord. I grant you that authority and permission and power, and I delight that it will take place. See? Now that's the basic. But sometimes we forget that Christ is living in us, and we actually view ourselves again, the Old Testament mentality again, we view ourselves as trying to live the Christian life. And no one has ever been able to live the Christian life. Matter of fact, no one's ever been able to live up to the law. No one has ever been able to even keep New Year's resolutions very long. I resolve on this day, 1985 January, I will. You know how long those are good for? Not very long. But I tell you something if you want to live the Christian life, don't try to live it. Let somebody live it. Let Jesus live it through you. Hallelujah. And He will live it through you. Now, I want to then bring up something here to deal with this area of family living. Because we're going to talk about Christ living in me and making me want to do something toward my wife. See, here I am. He knows that this man, James Durkin, I don't have a gift to be single. And so at the right time in my life, he leads me toward a very precious woman that he has prepared for me. And he says, here's the woman I brought to you i prepared her, I've kept her, I've lived in her, I've changed her life, and Jim Durkin, she's what you need. And in the same way he's spoken to her, you prayed for a husband, you believe you should be married, here is your husband. So the two of us get up before a minister, now for some of you I realize you might have been saved before you were Christians or without a man. that isn't the point I'm making, you're married, but anyhow, and for Christian purposes here I'll explain this. Get it before and I say, I thank God for you, Daisy. I know that God brought you to me. And you are going to be and are the queen of my life. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I declare that I love you with all of my heart and my soul and my mind. And I will love you all the days of my life. I will watch over you and cherish you. Love you, honor you, respect you, in sicknesses and health, richer or poorer, better for worse, until death do us part. See, that's a commitment, because I realize something. Now the question is, that can either be me speaking it, and all the time that I'm speaking, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah okay, get it over with quick, preacher. I want to give my wife a kiss and get out of here and get on the honeymoon, man. I mean, I'll, you know, give it a quick uh, thing here. And uh, many marriages are like that. James, do you love Daisy? Yes. Daisy, do you love James? Yes. You want to be married? I now pronounce you man and wife. Go. See? And that's a marriage ceremony. Well, not in my book, it is not. See, a person ought to think, Lord, you're living in me. You brought this woman to me. You brought me to this woman. Now, what do you want me to say to her? I love you. Forsaking all others, I will keep only to you. Will there be other beautiful women that will come into my life, pass through? Yes. What about them? Nothing. They're beautiful women. They're for somebody. Not for me. I found my beautiful woman and forsaking all others. I will keep on with you. And there must be something in her heart that says, one thing I know about my husband, he's for me. And he's given himself to me. So, Say, Lord, you show me then what to say to her, how to act, what to do, how to respond. So when she's listening to me, she's saying, Oh, that vow. See, you know, I forgot that vow at one time in my life. And it caused her to be separated and divorced. Until and God recalled the vow to me and said, Go back and establish covenant with the wife of your youth. Now, unfortunately, sometimes in these situations, people are remarried and nothing can be done. In my case, the door was open. We got together, and we rebuilt our life, not on feelings. Those were there, they came. We rebuilt them on Christ is in me, and Christ is in you. I'm going to start doing to you, and doing with you, and doing for you, and you're going to do the things that Christ urges us to do toward each other. So what I'm speaking then about is family living today. What does Christ want? Well, I'd like you to turn with me then, please, to two things. One of them you'll find in Ephesians 5:21. Turn your Bibles there, please. Now, don't anybody take from this message, if you were married presently, that you should get a divorce from your wife and go back to some prior marriage if you've been remarried. That is not what we're saying here. If you're married and you practice on the wife that God has given you and you make sure that your vows, your covenant vows, are lived out from this point on. That's what we're speaking about. So we'll turn here to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Wrong urging and right urging. Remember, right urging will line up with the Scripture, and wrong urging will be contrary to the Scripture. So it will always be right to do what the Scripture says, because that will be what the Spirit is saying. It will always be wrong to do what the Scripture does not say, and that is not what the Spirit of God is saying, it's what the Spirit of Satan is saying. All right, Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 21. and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, Christ will always be urging me to give honor to my brothers, to give honor to my sisters, to give honor to children that would come to me and say, Jim, I have something that I want to give to you. Today I was handed a poem by one of our dear younger sisters. Beautiful poem. She didn't want me to read it in church, or I sure would read it. Maybe someday she'll give me permission to. I thought it was fantastic. And she wrote that and said, I want to give this to you. I say, I honor that. How beautiful that is. I say, oh, oh, oh." okay, kid, thank you. No, that's precious. Precious. So the Bible tells us to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So a brother comes to me. He's three days in the Lord or one day in the Lord or five seconds in the Lord. Or he might be 50 years in the Lord. And he says, Jim, I have an idea. I think you should listen to it. Then what will always be my response to honor that and say, let me hear it. Now, sometimes I may not have time, but it should never be for, oh, that's Joe. I mean, or that's Mary. Or that's, hey, another winging idea, man, how long am I going to have to put up with this? See, no. That is never the Spirit of God. That is my human spirit still not regenerated properly as it should be in every area of my life, or that is the spirit of Satan saying, Oh Jim, how long are you going to have to put up with these wingdings? See? And then pretty soon I think it's my thought and I say, How long am I going to have to put up with these dinglings? No, wingdings. Oh, wingdings, yeah. That's not God. That's you. Get out of here. See? We know that. Because it's contrary to the word of God. Do we have a disdaining spirit? Do we have a deprecating spirit? Do we have a put-down mentality? Oh, man. Hey, hey, hey. Sometimes we have it with each other. Husband says, I've got an idea for you, honey. like you would listen to it. Oh, Lord, deliver me another one. The wife says, honey, I want to tell you about my day. Oh, Lord in heaven, she should hear about my day. See, and it's... Maybe your head is aching and you need to say, Honey, I've got a real bad headache. I need to lay down for about five minutes and take six aspirin or something like that. And then I want to hear about your day. Because you just let me lay down for a little bit. This, I had a hard day at the office. Sure, baby, let me come in and stroke your scalp for you and so forth. You may come off real good, I'll tell you. All right. Be subject one to another. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Two things I want here, love and respect. One of these things brought out. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself a church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now I want to tell you what makes people old. People do not get old because they get wrinkles. They don't get old because they've had 65, 70, or 75 birthdays. They get old because the love, the blessing, the praise, the honor, the respect has not been given for the value of that life. I want to tell you I've seen people that have been given that kind of love and honor and respect when they're 70 and 80 still strong and tall and erect and blessed, or if they have a sickness, they live above it. And I've seen people at 40 that were old. They were really dead, waiting only to stop breathing because they never lived in it where they'd been given respect and honor and love. Now, maybe in this world you don't get respect and honor and love from everyone, but I'll tell you who you ought to get it from. You ought to get it from your husband and you ought to get it from your wife and you ought to get it from your parents and you ought to receive it from your children and you should receive it from your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the principle. You want to see people grow old graciously, beautifully, wonderfully? Honor them. Respect them. Bless them. Encourage them. Let them know they're important. And I'll tell you they'll be strong and blessed all the days of their life. I will tell you this from certain knowledge. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. We are members of his body. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now here's this very important verse that I'm going to read. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. Why do I love myself? And I don't necessarily think that's in a bad way, or Christ wouldn't have said, love your wife as you love yourself. I think there's a proper self-love. I think there's an ungodly self-love. But there's a proper self-love. I don't remember any time I got it any morning of my entire life. And I went into the bathroom, looked at myself, then took my hand and said, take this, rascal. <laughs> Never did that. Go in there, and if I'm kind of like, oh, that kind of. That's right, it's coming down, praise God. I, I've... Now, we all tend to do that. I want to look my best I want to feel my best. I want to feel my life is worthwhile. I want to be respected. I want to be honored. Above all I want Christ honored. But love your wife as you love yourself. So I get up in the morning and I see my wife going in the bathroom and she looks in the mirror and sometimes she same as me. Oh, you know? <laughs> and she smiles, say Boy, you are more beautiful all that. I I'd love to look at you, you know. She, oh, <laughs> that's right. See, right? Now I could also look in there and say, "Hey, honey, I mean, quit looking at yourself. You got to admit we're getting old and ugly, right?" Oh yes, praise the Lord. You're not going to hear that out of me. I think she's a fantastic lady. Hallelujah! I love to look at her. She's beautiful, beautiful. When I get her up here, I say, isn't she pretty? Uh, She is, beautiful, beautiful woman. All right. Now, first lesson. Now, what are you going to say if you're married and you see your wife going to the bathroom, take a look at herself, she's not quite sure what she's looking at? What are you going to tell her? See, now you can lay there in bed and be like... Or you can wake up, this is my chance, this is my chance, hallelujah. She looks at herself and she's looking in the mirror and say. You are, if she, now if she do not want to be whistled at, don't whistle. My wife, That's okay, I do that. I do that. Okay. <laughs> Tell her she's beautiful. And you wise, when you see your husband's looking at him, don't just say, ha, 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 you're a little pot belly there, honey. <laughs> oh, you're hanging out, oh, you got Dunlop disease, you're hanging out over the back there. See? Don't do that. Tell him you're one handsome man. I just like looking at you. See? And if you don't like looking at them, you need a new revelation of Christ. He gave you the perfect husband for you. Next time, look at them and say, God chose those eyes just for me. God chose those manly shoulders just for me. God chose that. Then go in there and tell them that. Now, you think I'm kidding. How many of you think I'm kidding this morning? Good. This is the right church. Hallelujah. This is the right church. Hallelujah. All right. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his own wife even as himself and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now that word respect is an important word. In the early part of my marriage, I didn't know how to love my wife and she didn't know how to respect me. As a matter of fact, I can tell you I didn't love my wife and she didn't respect me. Not as a result of that. She just simply didn't respect me. That had not got into her spirit yet nor had it gotten in my spirit how to love my wife. But when we got back together, God had dealt with her in a very powerful way. And the attitude she had toward me was completely different. Not that I was different. I was different, but she didn't know that. See, I could have said, well, I'm different. How would she know that? The only thing she had is who the guy was she knew three years before that when we separated. But she told me the Lord had spoke to her and said, from now on, what you want to do, that's what I want to do. I said, well, you've always wanted me to be in the ministry, and I feel that because I sinned so greatly, I'll never be in the ministry again. She said, honey, I'd like to see you in the ministry, but she said, I'll never push you or ask you to be in the ministry again. I'm with you. Whatever you see to do, I'm with you. And I began to practice what I'm going to talk about, love. Please. I want you to go over here with me now, however, one of the scripture, 1 Peter, 3rd chapter. In the same way, you wise, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient by word. Now, the reason why I mention wise here is because husbands are liable to be the hard-headed guys. Any of you husbands are here, you know what I'm talking about. Men tend to be somewhat hard-headed. That's an understatement. In the same way, you wise, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Now, they go that far. They may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives, not by nagging. Watch that one. I know that sometimes a very great temptation to want to reform your husband. Well, you can't do it. I want to give you the sad news. No woman ever reformed any man yet. You know who reforms men? Christ reforms men. He changes them completely and you have to let Christ do it. Now he's saying, all right, I'll tell you how that's done. Now see, he's giving you counsel. Here's how it's done. It is done without a word. If you've got a disobedient, recalcitrant husband, maybe you mention it to him, honey, this or this or this, and you're, no way, man, I feel I'm right, and no, I, I know I'm right, and this is the way I feel about this, and, see, okay, now you can then live instinctively, right? Well, nobody talks to me this way, and I'll pack my bags, and I'm going home to mother, and this is what I'm, see, now that can go on, well, you go home to mother if you want to go home, and, see, now that's what happens sometimes in marriage. And this is why people say, well, God must have given me, or must have all been a big mistake. No, no, the mistake is the way we respond to each other. The mistake is the way we respond. See? Now, here's what it says. If you've got a husband that's got a head made out of concrete, and he's not obeying the word, in other words, he's a sinner, you win him without a word. Now, you might speak some words to him, make him that you can. But, I mean, it's saying that even if you weren't allowed to speak one word, don't mention one word about this Crazy religion of yours. Don't give me that Bible. I don't want to hear... The, really hard. They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Well, how can I respect a man like that? You can. You can. I've known women that had the most vicious husbands, that they allowed Christ to live through them and they manifested respect Till they won those husbands to Christ. They won them. I remember one woman coming to church one night. Her eye blackened. Her face bruised. Not one word against her husband. She didn't get them to say, oh, pray for me. My husband beats me and smashes me and crushes me and kicks me. And oh, woe is me. Do you see it? Not a word. Testified about the glory of God and how good God was. And won that man to Christ. Respected him. Please. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers be not hindered. Now it's saying what men should do. It means live with your wives in an understanding way. They have been put in a submissive role. You are commanded by God to be the head of your home. But brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, do not become a tyrant in your home. You need to understand that this woman is born by God to be your helpmeet, to stand with you. She's commanded by God to respect you and to honor you and to follow your decisions. Make sure you get good counsel when you make decisions. Make sure when you're going to speak to your wife that it isn't just out of anger or you're that at something she's done and just... That hurts pretty deep. Yes, God gives them grace, they recover. I've done it to my wife at times. Oh, come back, brethren, if you do it, and apologize. Ask forgiveness. That is a wrong thing to do. I told that woman of mine often, to, she'll never pull a deal like that on me again, I tell you. See? Well, that's the wrong thing to do, brethren. That's the wrong thing to do. Live with her in an understanding way. Understand that her emotions are gentler. Now, I'll tell you something. You stir up a woman's emotions the wrong way, and you're going to find you're going to turn loose a fire in your home that will tear you to pieces. See? The Bible says the man who troubles his own house, he will inherit the wind. The Bible says a wise woman builds up her house, a foolish one plucks it down with her hand. In other words, there is like God has placed in the born-again woman these gentle, kind, loving, precious emotions. Make sure you nurture them along. You build them. Don't keep boom, 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 boom until the old nature starts coming up and it's like, hmm See, because it's, you'll inherit the wind. You don't inherit the wind. Now, we don't want to inherit the wind. We want to inherit the grace of life. So, Peter here, this scripture, says, To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. See, there's the instinctive evil for evil, instinctive insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. Now, when I come back next week, I want to talk about the nature of love. You see, love isn't something you have only. Love is something you do. Love is not some feeling I have toward my wife only. Though I'm overwhelmed when I think of my wife at times. I'm overwhelmed at her kindness and generosity, her love for me, her respect for me, her honor for me. I'm overwhelmed at her beauty, her gentleness, her fidelity to God and to me, to her family, to the church. So many things I see there that are... But I wish to say to you that I did not see those things when all I had was feeling love. I have fallen in love and I love you and I want to get married. That didn't last. It became a bitter pill. Then when we got back together, we studied First Corinthians 13 and came to a wonderful revelation about love that isn't just something you feel it's something you do and I began to practice those things so I'm just going to say what love is first of all love is patient now my wife has had to practice that with me and I don't mean that in a like a right sense I'm not an easy person to get along with much easier now to get along with than I was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 20 years ago. But my wife's had to be patient while Christ worked with me. See, what my wife had for me when we first got married was feeling love. But she wasn't very patient with me because she didn't understand that's what's involved in it. What I had for my wife when I got married was feeling love, but I wasn't patient with her. Why can't you do this? Why can't you learn this? Why can't you get this down? I don't see why you're not able to do this. Others can do it. You can't do it. See, no patience. Then when we got back together, we said we we're going to practice patience with each other. Not that kind of, oh, Lord, I'll be patient with this person. But no, saying, hallelujah, we're growing in Christ together. You be patient with me, and I'll be patient with you. In the meantime, I love what I see. is fantastic. Like, I love the way you look and I love the way you talk and I love the way you walk and I love the way you think and I love your relationship to me and I love everything about you. And if there's something I don't like, hallelujah, I just take some time to look at myself and I will not be much concerned about what I don't like about you. I'm so busy looking at what I don't like about me. And says I don't like to look at what I don't like about me, I'm not going to look at what I don't like about you. Be patient. It says love is kind. Don't make deprecating remarks to each other. That isn't funny. That's painful. Now, personal. <laughs> that isn't funny. See, some years ago, the brothers got into a habit around here. The elders calling each other Turkey. I said, "Don't do that." Hi there, Turkey. Got a church full of turkeys. And one ego, me. Don't <laughs> make remarks like that to each other. While here we got to calling each other by our last name. Didn't last long, because I said, don't do that. When I said in the world, we did this. Hey, Smith, come here. You, Jones. Are you Durkin? Or maybe sometimes, like, you Durkin. Like... Love is kind. Morning, Jim. How are you this morning? Hi there. Sis, brother, name, first name. Let's go over and shake hands. When the ladies come up, sometimes they come up to a business meeting we're having, the elders are all sitting there, and they're all wigged out long about, they've been there three, four hours, and the ladies come, and the brothers are all sitting in their chairs like, oh, ho, oh, because they've been thinking pretty heavy, and they're tired. Ladies come in, and it's like, Say, brother, and rise up in the presence of these fair ladies here. And they, oh, yeah, right. That's Now, there's something right about that. Open the door for your wife in the car. Say, oh, we don't do that in 1985. Got a lot of problems in 1985 we didn't have in 1895 either. Hallelujah. Go around and open the car. And it was raining... There's nothing more wonderful than to let it rain on your head while your wife gets in out of the rain and you shut the door for her like this and you walk around like a white knight in shining armor and then you open your door and you get in the car and the rain is glistening on your head like diamonds and your wife says, what a wonderful husband I have. That's right. See? Uh Aha, I told you.